Hi, and welcome to this edition of the Authorised Podcast, the podcast where writers speak. Chance for us to get to know the authors of some of the books that we read. Uh, today we're meeting Catherine Firkin, a second-time author. We'll talk about uh, her work in just a second. Uh, but a reminder and uh, a thank you to our podcast partners, which is CSCG. When it comes to finance, when it comes to uh, talking about your taxation, your lending, your business planning, your financial planning... They're the people to talk to. And they're very good people and very easy to talk to as well. You can uh, check out uh, all about them on their website, cscg.com.au, or just give them a call on uh, 03 994 They're always available for a chat, whether it's your taxation, it is tax time, of course, uh, or your uh, anything to do with your financial situation. Give them a call and have a chat. They are very good people, and we thank them for their support on the podcast. Catherine Firkin's first novel uh, was certainly a great debut, and she's followed it up with a, a really good book called The Girl Remains. So let's talk to second-time author Catherine Firkin about this latest uh, Australian crime fiction uh, that she's done and done so very well. Hey, congratulations. A lot of people say, you know, everyone's got one book in them. Well, you got that out of the road. Was the second book harder or did, did it just flow out of you? Do you know, writing the second book was actually a lot easier and that really surprised me. There's wow. this sort of, yeah, there's this phenomenon among writers where they talk about, you know, the, the second book blues and this feeling of trying to beat your first book or, you know, at least do something that's as good, whereas I actually found the opposite. I felt this freedom having got the first book out of the way that I could just sort of tell this story the way I wanted to, and it really flowed a whole lot easier than my first one. Was there a lot of expectation for you uh, because you'd done the first book and and, and Sticks and Stones have been a a really good success for you? Uh, Did you have uh, internal expectations on yourself? I did have expectations, but to be really honest with you, right from the start when I wrote Sticks and Stones and when I really pushed to try and become a published author, I always had a goal that this was going to be a long-term project, not that I was just going to get one book out and if that happened, that would be terrific. So I never saw Sticks and Stones as kind of the peak of the mountain. I only ever saw it as that first stepping stone. So really, it felt quite natural to go on to the next one. The Girl Remains, where did this story come from to you? Well, interestingly, because it wasn't the case with my first book, the setting in the Mornington Peninsula, this book is set in Blairgowrie, which is a coastal town. It's got that sort of small town feel, but then it does have that influx of tourists during the summer, which makes for quite an interesting dynamic. And for me, the setting of this book really came first. It's a wonderful, evocative area. And when you think about the smell of tea trees and the Moonar trees and all the coastal shrubbery, it felt right for telling a cold case story, which was where I took my detective Emmett Corbin next in his journey. Um, the Blair Gary is a place you spent a lot of time, uh, I, I gather, as, uh, as uh, growing up, uh, sort of like your holiday resort place. Yeah, it you know, it wasn't so popular and sort of, it's a bit glam now. It wasn't back then. I was lucky enough to have a friend whose parents had a beach shack down there and it really was one of those classic old, you know, with all respect to them, slightly run down, lovely old beach shacks, which yeah. I actually, you know, I really love them the most because you get sand everywhere, you've got no worries. It's just a fun, relaxed atmosphere. So I, we spent a lot of time there and then as we 
grew up a little bit and, you know, became teenagers, it was the place we would go to on our own and sort of, you know, get up to mischief and adventure. <laughs> and when you, you know, when you're 14, 15, 16, and suddenly you're on your own at the back of the bus heading up to, you know, a house on your own, there's really this sense of anything could happen. And I, I think I just wanted to take that energy of that excitement, but also, I guess, a little bit of fear, like, you know, that, that adventure and that excitement was something I wanted to turn into this story. Well, was there a, a thought in your head at any stage of not calling it Blair Gowrie and, and going, you know, with doing the Jessica Fletcher and having the Cabot's Cove type fictional place? Or did you always think, no, I'll make it Blair Gowrie because I can relate to that better? My two novels now, and I'm in the process of the third, are fairly what I would call realistic. You know, they are police procedurals. I do try to follow very realistic protocols of how police investigate crimes and what your everyday person might actually do. So setting it in a real location felt right for me. You do run the risk, though, when you do that, that you get a little detail wrong. And if you do, it really upsets people, I've learned. I I actually, I I misnamed a tree early on in my advanced copy. And luckily someone picked it up, but I instantly had a flood of messages from people like, that that tree doesn't exist on the post, that's in the town across. (laughs) So you do run the risk of having to make sure that you are really describing that area accurately. Oh, well, fortunately, you obviously have, you know, 20,000 fact checkers who live in the district who are straight on to it for you, <laughs> which makes a big difference. That's right. Hey, uh, your, your, your previous uh, and, and still current uh, as, a, as a reporter and a crime reporter and a court reporter, is that uh, where the genesis of, of your book writing came or did the book writing come before that happened? You know, ever since I was young, I wanted to be an author. So I don't think being a journalist made me want to write a novel and particularly fiction. I I think in my heart, I was always going to write fiction. What's interesting is that if you'd asked me, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I would have told you I'd end up writing probably commercial women's fiction or, you know, something a little bit more your summer beach read type books. Um, And it was only through... My, my job, I sort of ended up almost inadvertently getting into crime and court reporting and, and much more serious breaking news type things that I found myself really drawn to the mystery of it all, the way the police almost have this you know secret code going on in front of you, how they work things out. I find all of that really, really fascinating and I've combined that with the domestic aspects of some of those commercial fiction stories um, and I, I really like the result. Yeah. The uh, the relationship between uh, the media and the police has always been a fascinating one from someone who's in the media to watch from afar. You're, you're right in the coalface of it. How does, how does that relationship work uh, and how has it worked for you in kind of explaining, you know, in, writing, in the writing of the books? Do you know, it's interesting because I think from the outside a lot of people see the media and journalists, particularly unfortunately in the current climate, almost like we're scavengers picking at the carcass and really just getting in the way of investigations. Mm. And look, that might be true sometimes, but I I do think it's interesting and what people maybe don't realise is that the media and, and police do quite often work hand in hand. For instance, I'm often out covering what I would call day-to-day crimes, where I'll go out to a crime scene early in the morning 
once I've sort of got whatever I can there, I'll, I'll walk up and down the street, do some door knocking, talk to neighbours, see what they saw, you know, did you hear anything, that sort of stuff. And quite often, once that story goes to air, the police will actually phone, a detective will ring up the newsroom and say, hey, did you get the number of that person? Because, you know, for whatever reason, they haven't been able to get onto them. And whatever they've said to me is actually very useful for their investigation. So there is a little bit of a partnership between detectives and the media. The other thing that can happen is that the police will deliberately use the media, and you'll be aware of this, where they'll call a press conference and they will deliberately drop us a piece of information that they want us to get out there far and wide because they actually will have someone under surveillance and they're hoping that that person will react when they see the news reports, potentially leading them to evidence or something suspicious that they can then take forward. Yeah. Yeah, it's an, an interesting one. What has captivated you about the way the police go about that police procedural um, operation? Uh, was that what got you sort of, you know, the way they go about things? Is that what captivated you first up? Yeah, I mean, I do think it's very interesting, uh, the methods and procedures that police take to solve crimes, particularly in Australia, that there are quite different laws between different states. Um, I mean, there is one case in this book, The Girl Remains, where I actually went back and spoke to one of the lead detectives, and that was the case of Cherie Beasley, a little girl that disappeared uh, in Rosebud back in 1991, which was initially when I actually had set my book. Um, so I don't know if you, you're happy for me to talk about that, but that was a particular case that really I actually went back and interviewed the detective and said, can you talk to me about how you did this? Because I wanted my book to be very realistic. Yep, yep. Is that, is that an area that you have to be careful in from a, from a I guess, from a, a sensitivity point of view as much as anything else? Do you know, that's a really good question. I'm actually really glad you said that. One thing that I have found very difficult with these two books is taking, I don't want to say inspiration because that's exactly what I'm not trying to do, yeah. taking influence from how police manage their process without feeling like I'm gratuitously using a real-life case to write a fiction fictional story, if you know what I mean. Yeah, no, I do know I think right. you have to be very, very careful. And I actually got a bit upset when my first book was released, an article came out in a magazine that, that I, the headline was, you know, how the murder of so-and-so inspired my debut. Oh. And I rang the editor up and said, that is not at all okay. That's not what I said. This is a real person who died. I spoke to the family. This is, you know, a real case. There are real grieving people. And that's not at all what I've taken from it. I'm not inspired by anyone's murder or any of these horrific cases. What interests me is the solving of the cases the method that police take and the way they actually manage to get justice for victims. But it's a difficult topic to cover and I'm really glad you've noticed that. You do have to make a distinction. Yeah. Yeah, because of the, you know, what they do on television, uh, drama presentations inspired by real events, all those sorts of things is is a really grey area. Yeah, it's not an area that I'm particularly comfortable with. Yeah. um, But I do find I've, made some really good relationships with some of the detectives I've met along the way and I do find it very helpful because as I said earlier on I want my novels to be realistic as much as I want them to be entertaining and everything else I want you to read the novel and think this could have actually happened and this is how the police would have possibly gone about 
solving it. So it has been very helpful for me to sit down with detectives and actually learn a bit more about how they go about things. And given that insight that you've got and that, uh, I guess, that accessibility you've got to the police, now, obviously there are people who read into your stories much more than there is actually there, which is their interpretation, not yours. Yeah, and, you know, it's, it's interesting, again, as I said, I, I looked at the case of Cherie Beasley for this story because it was set in the same location, because it was about a missing child, as my story is, and because the police methodology on that was a little bit controversial. Mm. Um, but what was interesting was when I went back and read um, my manuscript, there were actually quite a few more similarities between the cases which you could draw if you wanted to, which I had not intended writing the book, and they were certainly not done consciously. So that's also why I think you have to be careful that you're making a distinction about not being inspired by these real-life crimes, but simply trying to better understand how they were solved. Yeah, yeah. Um, your, your relationship with the, with the police, where did you find your quirky police officers and uh, some of the, some of the uh, interesting little uh, characteristics, human characteristics they have, like, you know, sitting on the floor and eating fairy floss and things? Yeah, well, I shouldn't say this because I'm supposed to say everything's fictional, but that, <laughs> that was that was a real-life detective I saw, like literally sitting with a, with a tub of fairy floss. And I, as soon as I saw that, I thought, I have to include that in a book <laughs> because it's such an unlikely sort of almost juxtaposition. You've got this, um, you know, detective out solving these really grisly crimes during these long hours, all that sort of thing, and then you know, quietly pulling the, the fairy floss and the chewing gum and the sweet treats out and sort of almost behaving like a little child. It was quite sweet. Um, and you do, what's interesting with police is most of them, I know there are some bad eggs, but most of them are driven by this real need to get justice for the victims, particularly when you're talking about cold case and homicide and those sort of units. Um, so they all have this one driving factor, but they do tend to be really different, unique, individual people. And I think sometimes in novels, detectives get written all as a sort of chiseled jaw, broad-shouldered, um, sort of I'm off to save the day type person. Whereas in reality, you know, they're just like you and me. They've all got their weird little quirks and reasons for being. And they've also got their own different way of releasing tension for want of a different expression, how they sort of cope with what they experience day to day. So as an author, what what's your version of releasing tension? Is a bucket of chips or a... Pop, whatever. <laughs> what, what do you what do you do? Because uh, I mean, you can get you can get immersed in a in a book like uh, The Girl Remains and and kind of lose yourself a bit. I'd imagine. Yeah, it's, you know, you do not want to see me when I'm in the real throes of trying to get a manuscript finished, particularly the very first draft. It's just such a marathon and such a like just one foot in front of the other kind of process. You do get into almost this weird of just, I'm not going to shower, I'm not going to eat, I'm not going to sleep. And it, I mean, the way I wrote this second book, The Girl Remains, I was literally sitting on the floor resting on a bedside table because I had no furniture at the time. And mm. my poor husband was popping up every so often, you know, supplying me with water and, and food. And 
by the end, he just shook his head when he looked at me and said, oh, my gosh, it's happened. You've turned into that crazy writer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's happened. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, we've all got to do it. Did, it did, did, did the book come easily or was it a hard book to write? You know, there's always a process. We're talking about 90,000 words. There's always a point when you're – I, for me, it's usually about halfway or maybe three quarters where you just think, is it not finished yet? There's still 30,000 words to go and it just feels insurmountable. But, you know, you really have to push yourself at that point to keep going because sort of the gold is always just beyond yeah. <laughs> just beyond that, that summit. And then, you know, the endings always fly out. They're always easy, exciting. You're downhill, you can see the finish line, it's great. But there is a point in the middle where you're just wading through mud yeah. and you wonder why you're doing this to yourself. But the, the payoff is when you when you get that book in your hand, there is nothing quite like that feeling of, uh, of that, is there? No, and I'm, I'm really, really happy with the cover. It's quite different from it's my good. first novel. Yeah, I feel like it's very evocative. I mean, I've, I think my writing's been heavily influenced by Scandinavian crime. It's something... I absolutely oh, yes. love, and when I look at the image, I'm like, "Yes, finally, penguin are getting me." <laughs> this oh, I'm with you. That's that's like that's like oh, I love Scandinavian uh, 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 cop shows and stuff. I've, I adore them. Um, yeah, that yes. would, that would fit perfect. Yes, that works. That really does work. Yes, I just need a slightly more icy, snowy backdrop, and I'm <laughs> I'm right there. And, and a bridge somewhere in the background. <laughs> <if you can. laughs> <laughs> Speaking of ice, uh, is that right? You're a figure skater in a uh, you know in earlier days. In a former life, yeah, I've had a funny life because I could write my CV. I think about five different ways, yeah. um, and it's almost got to the point people don't really believe me anymore because I'm one of those people where I I do have a goal at things. So you know, I got really involved in figure skating. I competed for Australia. My partner and I were ice dancers. Again, it fills the world away from. Um, media and so you're you know, a potential Torvalandine, were you? <laughs> Not quite that good. Um, no, a long way off being that good, but I was absolutely obsessed with it for a long time, and it was um, it was yeah, my absolute passion. I mean, I still love, I still love skating and things like that. I think I've always been a bit of a creative in many ways. It is a very creative sport. Yeah. Um, but I, I definitely, I don't regret hanging up the boots. And moving on, <laughs> there's only so much you can take. So, what? Uh, how do you juggle life these days between author, reporter, and all those things that uh, that you're doing? I mean, that's that obviously is a hell of a juggle. Yeah, it's not it's not super easy. But look, there's, there's a lot of people, particularly when you're starting out. I mean, I don't think I'm giving away any secrets when I say that writing a novel does not make you a millionaire. You don't get a book published and then go, "Great, I'm putting my feet up." I'm yeah. never working a nine-to-five job again. It just, unfortunately, it just doesn't happen. So I don't think I'm exceptional to still be keeping up a full-time job and writing. What may be a little bit different about working in the media, as you would know, is that the hours can be extremely varied. Mm. Um, and when something happens, I mean, at the moment, I'm, I'm living in New York, and just the other day, there was that attack in, in Washington on the Capitol. Yep. And everything you had planned for the day goes out the window. You know, I'm straight on a train. It's four hours. I get there at night. I've got a 2 a.m. live cross. You know, I'll stay in Washington for the next four days and do all the sort of follow-up stories. And any dinner plans or 
you know, thoughts of sitting by the beach, writing my book or whatever I might have had planned <laughs> goes out the window, you know. So you you have to get quite creative with finding time and just getting it done. You know, I'm, I've got really good now at just grabbing 15 minutes and, you know, almost doing a sprint of writing. And I know some people might say that's not a, you know, that's not the pure way to write and you should be sitting there for hours. But sometimes you just don't have hours. You've got to just take what you can and, and get it done. However you get it done, yeah. And when the finished product is, uh, is what you come up with, well, you know, gee whiz, uh, you can't argue with that. Yeah, no, I'm glad to hear you say that. I'm very happy with the second book. I think, um, you know, nothing beats your debut because it's such a milestone. But seeing the second one come out and at the moment I'm actually back in Australia, so I'm going to hopefully this time around get to actually go to bookstores and meet people and, and all the rest of it. Because my first book came out right in the middle of the pandemic. Yeah. There was no book launch or anything. So um, I think this one's going to actually feel a little bit more real and I'm really excited for people to read it. No. Good on you. Congratulations. I've got to ask you finally, um, there's a character in the book by the name of Tardio. Now, I know your, uh, I know your radio heritage and uh, I'm a Melbourne radio broadcaster, obviously. Uh, there's the Tardio um, as, a, as a, a, a sort of poke to the two famous 3AW Tardios? Or? <laughs> Do you know, I sent him a copy of my first book when it came out and I didn't say anything and I, and I thought if he just writes back and says, what a fantastic novel. Oh, no, he hasn't read it. <laughs> um, but he actually did, to, to, to his credit. So Tony Talia was certainly, I wanted an Italian name. I wanted something that felt real to me. And I I, thought, I don't know, I just like the name Talia. I think it's kind of cool. So, yeah, I, I, I did steal his surname. and um, Fair enough. I'm happy you picked it up. Fair enough. Uh, Catherine, congratulations on, on both your books. Well done. And uh, obviously, as you mentioned, you, you're working on the third one now. I am. The third one's a little bit different. It's a standalone. It's actually set in uh, America where I've been living the last two years. So okay. it's going to have a slightly different feel to it. But, um, you know, hopefully, hopefully people will enjoy it as well. Continued success and good health. Thank you so much for spending some time with us on the Authorised Podcast. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Well, thanks to Catherine for her time on the Authorised Podcast. Always a pleasure to catch up with uh, someone who's uh, who's doing some great work and already got her third novel in the works. And as she said there, a little bit different, uh, but uh, certainly one to look forward to. The Girl Remains is the name of the book we talked about today, and it is available uh, around the traps uh, thanks to uh, Penguin Random House. And we thank them for organising the interview, and thanks to Catherine for her time. And thanks, of course, to our podcast partners, CSCG. It's tax time. If you're, if you're dealing with that, and we all are... You know, you have to. Um, get someone to help you. And the people who uh, help you are the people at CSCG. They're experts in all fields of finance. So whether it's, uh, say, taxation or superannuation, uh, whether you want to borrow some money, lend some money, whatever it is, they can help you out with it. Uh, check out uh, all the details of the services they have to offer on their website, cscg.com.au, or give them a call. And they're always up for a chat. 03 8333 is their number. We thank them for their support. Thanks for listening to this edition of the uh, podcast, the Authorised Podcast, where writers speak. Another one's coming to you very shortly. Hope you enjoy it when it comes. Until then, take care of yourself. Listener.